house he's moving at. Can you guys clap again? Just That was a pretty weak clap the first time, so I needed you guys to resolve that. You know it was weak. I mean, don't. Is it? Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> what? I've told Jerry the whole time. It, he, I feel like he's uh, uh, on one of those late night shows, and every time I say a corny joke, he should give like a rim shot or. Yeah, I, I was waiting on it to, <laughs> to come. If you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 14. Give me a, you're going to have to give me some leeway to get used to this. I've got a new stand here. I'm probably going to pull this microphone out in just a moment. I can already tell, but I'm um, going to have to get used to this setup here. Yep, there it goes, Jerry. I have enjoyed being in here nonetheless. That was one of the most fun things about sleepovers. You got to sleep in weird places, but you got to be with your friends. You were close with your friends, you know. You got to, you'd have those big sleepovers or slumber parties, and you'd all sleep together, and you'd all have pillow talk. That was the best. I feel like we're all having pillow talk in here. I've closed off the balcony. Yep. Just don't be shocked when you come in next time and you see that the balcony is closed. It's a test of your spirituality to see how much you love us and Jesus. No, I'm just, I'm just teasing. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for this church. Thank you that... You are not a monochromatic God. That you have made us different. To perfectly reflect your nature. We are different. Yet we are one. You are mysteriously Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You are different in your personhood. You have different functions. But you are mysteriously and wonderfully one. Here, we are black and we are white and we are young and we are old and we are male and we are female. We are rich and we are poor. Holy Spirit, make us one. Thank you for the opportunity to be in this gym, to be displaced, so that we might see the wonderful joy of being close to one another. Thank you for the opportunity of being displaced, so that we might learn how to be one. Lord, there are many today who are not here with us. I pray for them, that you would heal their bodies, that you would protect them while they're traveling, that you would let them know we care for them, that we love them. 
Show us how we might serve them in their hour of greatest need. Lord, I pray for our nation. They run aimlessly looking for answers where there are no answers to be found. They look in psychology. They look in biology. They look in sociology. And they sleep on Sundays. And yet the answer is right here in your word. The solution to racism, sexism, and sin is Christ alone. Lord, give us a passion for souls. Give our nation, Lord God, a chance at revival. Let this church be the instrument in this revival. Give us that privilege, Lord God. Not because there's anything inherently great about America or about Americans, but simply, Lord, because it's our nation. And it has been given to the church the responsibility to pray first and foremost for its own nation, for its own local assemblies. Lord, I pray for this nation. This nation has not always been good. This nation has not done everything good. When this nation was close to you, it was good. But now your nation, this nation, seeks to devour your people like so much bread. Lord, I pray that you would be merciful to this nation through the church, not in spite of it. Bring revival to this nation. Bring revival to this church. Lord, I pray that the people here this morning who need to hear the gospel, all of us need to hear the gospel. There's not one of us here this morning, believer or unbeliever, who doesn't need to hear the gospel. One needing to be regenerated and the other needing to be rejuvenated in the knowledge that salvation comes in Christ alone, not in dead works, not in other names. And our bodies will fail us. Thank you for proving that so that you might crucify any idol. Lord, our, our own righteousness has failed us. We cannot be perfect. Thank you for proving that in us so that we might not rely on dead works but might look to Jesus with a contrite heart and say, be merciful upon me, a sinner. Lord, I pray that you would change hearts this morning. Every word that I speak this morning is impotent if it is emptied of the power of your spirit. Open hearts this morning to the preaching of your word. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would return. So much harm and so much hurt Lord Jesus, we know when you come, weeping and death and tears will be wiped away. Lord Jesus, come. Amen. We've been looking at Psalm 14 for the last three weeks, and I want to just quickly review this 
before we get to our passage this morning. Our main passage is going to be verses 4 through 6, and next week we're going to end with verse 7. But I want to just lay the groundwork, if you will, for just a moment of exactly what the context is that we're talking about here. Remember that the first verse says that the fool says in his heart there is no God. So there is, there is an adversary in this psalm. And the adversary changes names and it, it, it gets into a description. But the main thing we want to keep in mind with this psalm is the fool, the attitude of the fool. We noted that the fool is not someone who does not have learning, that they don't have a formal education. Right? Some of the dumbest people you've ever met in your life have doctor degrees, doctoral degrees. I see I don't have one. I, I, don't, I don't have a degree, so I, I messed that up. But, but this is not talking about the knowledge or intelligence. That's not what God is concerned with here. And he, and he describes the fool in this passage. He calls him an evildoer in our verse today. He says that they lack knowledge, that they don't have understanding. He even broadens this to say that the whole world is, is actually foolish. The whole world has rejected God. In fact, when we take this psalm and we read about this psalm in the New Testament, we see that Paul understands this psalm to be speaking about all of us, that all of us are actually foolish in God's eyes. Why? Because we have rejected God. We have rejected God. We are opposed to God. Some of us think, you know, I wasn't there with Adam in the garden, and had I been there with Adam in the garden, I would have never made such a mistake. Yeah, I hear you laughing over there. How would you know that? Furthermore, Adam was a perfect man in a perfect environment whatever it was, and whoever he was. And he chose to rebel against God. So we learn that the fool is morally, though, he is not only, he is not only all of us, but he's also morally responsible and spiritually responsible for his folly. That, that this is a decision, a, 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 conscient, a, a conscious decision to decide to say, I'm going to reject God. I don't want to follow God. I'm going to go my own way. So that this is not ignorance of a topic. It is willful disobedience and willful rejection of Almighty God. Now we get to our passage this morning. Verse 4. Have they no knowledge? Who's they? The evildoers. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers, the fool, those who reject God, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. I want to talk about three things this morning. 
The first thing I want to point out is that rejecting God has led to our temporal afflictions. The rejection of God has led to all of life's afflictions. The second thing I want to point out is that a full rejection of God leads to the eternal punishment of our souls. The full rejection of God leads to the eternal punishment of our souls. And finally, I want to explain how Christ can be your refuge this morning. But look with me at our first point. The rejection of God has led to all temporal afflictions. Temporal means of time. Look at what the psalmist says. David says, have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread? Now, it's been already established that all fools have a knowledge of God. Look with me, if you would, really quickly at Romans 1. Romans 1. 18. The Apostle Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Those two things go hand in hand of men who by their unrighteousness don't know the truth, are ignorant of the truth. No, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They have made a conscious decision to say, I don't want what God has for me. It's the wonder of sin. The wonder of sin is how any of us, especially in the case of Adam, can be in the community of God and still say, I don't want you. How anyone can look at the glories of creation, the beauty of his word, and the sweetness of the Savior and say, I don't want you, God, is the wonder of sin. How can any of us ever say of God, I don't want what you have? And the psalmist begins by asking, have they no knowledge? It, it, is, it is preposterous to him. And it is preposterous to all of us who know the sweetness of salvation in Jesus Christ. How anyone could reject such a great and merciful salvation. Yet it happens all the time. They resist willfully. Hebrews 1.3 says that in the past God spoke to the world by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken by his son. As if the word of God was not enough to reveal the character of God, he has shown us his greatest act. I mean, you can look at the, the majesty of outer space and, and see the beauty of the planets and, and see the, the immenseness of space and just wonder and just say, wow, how great is our God. That he could take this planet and, and place us precariously within a solar system, within a universe that is incredibly hostile to any life, and let life thrive is amazing and do so in a wonderful and enjoyable way. How any God could do such a thing and do it by the spoken word is 
unfathomable. But the greatest act God has ever done is that that same God that made the heavens and the earth, the one who is high and lifted up and worthy to be praised, that that same God would take upon himself a body of flesh and would be counted guilty before guilty men and hung on a cross is unspeakable. Have they no knowledge of this God? No. Of course they do. God has spoken to them by his son. What makes these men so evil? We talked about this. It, it, it's not that people, that, that these men are, are as terrible as they could possibly be. Not everyone who rejects God is Adolf Hitler, right? But what makes them wicked is that they resist the sweet salvation of grace in Christ alone. This is what makes it so evil. It is from that rejection of God, as we read in Romans 1, it's from that rejection of God that leads to all other sins. Listen to what it says in verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, since all men have decidedly, they have made the decision to say, I don't want God and I don't want your will, since they committed that sin, Paul says, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You know, we sometimes in the evangelical church have become moralizers and we try to convert people to, to fit into a moral standard. We want to make the homosexual heterosexual. We want to make the drunkard sober. We want to make the drug addict sober. We want to get the adulterer to stop committing adultery. And all of those things are wonderful things in and of themselves. I'm not saying I don't want a drunkard to be sober. But what I am saying is that those are symptoms of a greater sin. This is what scripture tells us. That those are symptoms of rejection against God. Since they rejected God, God has turned them over to a debased mind. To do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. That, that means that there's no end to how unrighteous this world can become the further it gets away from God. Frederick Nietzsche, the, the nihilist, the atheistic philosopher, knew that much. That once you unchain the earth from its sun, there's no, there's no end to how debased society can become. All kinds of evil, he says. All manner. They're evil. They're covetous. All kinds of malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They're gossips. They're slanderers. They're haters of God. They're insolent. They're haughty. They're boastful. They're inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
The rejection of God leads to all temporal afflictions. Listen to what it says. Who also eat up my people as they eat bread. Think about that thought for just a moment. So they have rejected God, and we talk about all kinds of evil, but perhaps this is one of the worst evils that the human race could ever do. It is to devour the people of God, and starting with our Savior. That the very chosen one of God would be despised by men and devoured like so much bread is beyond belief. He says, they devour my people like bread. We eat bread as if it's nothing. If, if I came, if I invited you to my house, and you walked in, and you sat at my table, and I laid down a loaf of bread and said, dinner served, you would look at me like I was crazy. Bread is what we get when we're waiting for the main course, right? Bread is the thing that you that's on the top, it, it's what holds the Monte Cristo together. It, it's what holds the Cuban sandwich together. Although that Cuban bread is pretty good bread, I won't lie. But bread is insignificant. But David is saying, l listen to how evil this sin is. It's that they've taken God's people and treated God's people like they're nothing. Not only that, this is a challenge to God himself. It's not that they're saying, oh, it's, these people are insignificant, that the, the evildoers, those who reject God, are saying that they're insignificant. It's that they're saying, you're insignificant because your God is insignificant, and he's not going to do anything about it. It's saying right before God's very eyes, I'll devour your people like they're nothing. I'll take your son like he's nothing, put him on a cross, and you're not going to do anything about it. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? The evildoer? The fool devours God's people like he won't avenge the suffering. Look at what it says in Luke 18, 7. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. God reassures us of this one thing. That while we are going to suffer at the hands of those who reject God, at the institutions of oppression, those institutions that seem improperly, improperly angered and hateful towards Christians, God will avenge his people. Do they not call upon the Lord? He says there they are in great terror. Who are they? It's the evildoers. The evildoers here are in great terror. Calvin thought it was the day that this great terror, when they, are, they find themselves in, is the day when they least expect it. God never lacks style. He always waits until that last moment, to the moment where people, right as the devil thinks he's got God's people, God always shows up. Every single time. Think about it. 
the devil says, I've got God now on a cross. And he's nailed to it. And he's crying out. And he's screaming. And he's embarrassed. I've killed God. And for three days, for three days, he thought he had won a victory. Until God showed up at the exact moment of great terror for all those who opposed God's people. And the world proclaimed he is alive. God always allows the afflictions of his people to one day bring about the glory of his purposes in his providence. And he did this in the cross. Paul reassured the Thessalonican church when he said, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The, apostle, the, the psalmist, David, writes, There they are in great terror. When are they going to be in great terror? On that day when God returns. Look at what he says here. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. There, says David, they will be in great terror. The second thing I want us to learn this morning is the rejection of God leads to the eternal punishment of evildoers. You might say the full rejection of God leads, leads to the eternal punishment of evil doers. And we know that this is at the point where this psalm gets a little bit strange because at the beginning, David has told us that there is no one who does good. Now he's saying that God is going to avenge the righteous. H how is it the case that it can have two groups is it not a contradiction to say that there is no one who seeks after God, none who have understanding, and yet God avenges his righteous? How is it that there can be no one good, yet some who are righteous? This is a contradiction. Unless, unless both are true in Jesus Christ. In Jeremiah 31, the prophet said this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. No one righteous. The covenant that he made with the world in Adam, Adam broke. The covenant that he made with Noah, men broke. The covenant that he made with Moses, we broke. My covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God 
and they shall be my people. God is making for himself in this day a people who are righteous, a people for himself. God has begun this process already through the selection of his son and through his son, the selection of a people, a people who will proclaim his name among the nations. And those evildoers who reject God will not get away with their condemnation of God's people. He says here, you would shame, and back in Psalms, back in our passage, you would shame the plans of the poor. Atheists often chide Christians for believing God in the midst of great suffering. In, in any, if, if anything proves that God doesn't exist, says the atheist, says the evildoer, it's that his very people suffer. One thing atheists love to point out is how can there be a God and yet not only that they're suffering, but that you, Christian, and even you may feel this way, how is it that you suffer? How, how can suffering happen if we're with God? How is it possible that, that, that we can get cancer and, and that we can lose our jobs and that we can lose people suddenly? How is it that we can get into depression? Read Psalm 42. Our soul sometimes will pant for God. And if there's anything, says the atheist, that disproves that God is on your side or that God is real, it's that you, believers, suffer. But God says something different. If there's anything that proves my glory, it's that in the midst of great suffering, the people of my choosing will say this, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You know, the story about Job is not a story about Job. It's a story about God. God is going to vindicate his name. When the devil comes before God in counsel, what does he say? He says, the reason why Job praises you is because you've never done evil to him. Richard Dawkins says, Christians have a belief in God because they need a crutch. They want a crutch. You're right, because we're very crippled. But the devil's, this is, this is diabolical theology. You think about just for a second how wicked health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is. That if you follow God, you'll never lose your health. That the reason why you lost your health is because you lack faith. Or that the reason why you don't have money is because you lack faith. Or if you really want to prosper, just evoke the name of God. That is diabolical teaching. That is from Satan himself. When Satan took Jesus out into the wilderness, when the Spirit took Jesus out into the wilderness to tempt, be tempted by Satan, the Bible tells us that Satan said of him, throw yourself off of this building and he will send his messengers so that you won't even strike your foot. In other words, if God is really your father, Jesus, no harm will ever come to you. 
Christian, if you've listened to that kind of teaching, you are following the words of demons, not the words of God. If God didn't deliver his own son from suffering and you are his servant, what makes you think he delivered you from suffering in this life? This is false teaching. If anything proves God, it's that in the midst of suffering, we can still love him. Remember what Paul said in Romans 8, 28. To those who love him, we know that in all things God works for their good. In all things, not that all things are good. I heard a man say that, that this touched me so much when we were standing there and we were praying just several months ago, praying for my father in the midst of his surgery. My, my dad's Sunday school teacher said, before we pray, I, I want to remind you, believers, because I, I think that you might be struggling right, right now with the idea of suffering. He says, I want to remind you of this. God said that he would work in all things for our good, but not that all things are good. Don't be delusional about your suffering. Suffering in this life is real. But you, believer, you have a guarantee that if you are in Christ and you love God, that God is going to mysteriously, somehow, he is working it right now for your good. And you may never see it in this life. But we trust that God works for our good. The bad news is, is that those who have rejected God, the Bible tells us that God will judge them. That God will be the refuge of his people. You know, if you don't have God as your refuge this morning, I want to just talk briefly about how we can have that. Finally, the psalm ends by saying, but the Lord is their refuge. He is the refuge of the downtrodden and the oppressed. He is the refuge of his people. And what is a refuge? Is it nirvana? Is it a state of bliss? No. When I read this passage, I thought about when, when I played golf. And anybody who plays golf during the summer you, especially if you're in South Florida, you know that in the afternoon, you, you got to get your round in by 12 o'clock because by 12 o'clock, you're going to have thunderstorms, really bad thunderstorms. And you're out there and you're walking around with giant metal sticks in the middle of an open field and lightning storms kill golfers all the time. So they have these things out on the golf course, these little houses that should you hear the horn, because lightning is within five miles, that's when they blow the horn, when it's within five miles of the golf course, you run to the refuge. There have been some times where I've just gotten in in the nick of time, seen lightning strike the trees right next to it. Very scary. I remember one time at the Country Club of Miami that happened. But, but the refuge doesn't stop the storm. The refuge doesn't hide the storm from your eyes. You e 
even feel the shaking of the storm and the shaking of the thunder. And the water beats on your back, and it's scary. But you're trusting in the refuge. And the Bible says the Lord is our refuge. This is not a promise to take us out of the storm or to stop the storm. It is a promise to be there during the storm. It is a promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And as bad as it gets in this life, and it's going to get really bad. God will be our refuge. Jesus says you can have this certainty. You know, he doesn't promise this to everyone. The Lord is not everyone's refuge. For the evildoer, the evildoer is going to be pressed down and under the wrath of God. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against those who have suppressed the knowledge of God. So God is not everyone's refuge, only some. And he can be your refuge this morning if you will turn to him. Listen to what Jesus said when he finished the greatest sermon the world has ever heard, the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Just what we sang about with Kathleen. And the rain fell. You see, the rain still falls. The flood still came, and the wind still blew, and it says they even beat on that house. The Bible does not mask, it does not lie to you. If there's anything the Bible does not do, it's lie to you about the reality of suffering in this life for those who are in God, who are in Christ. It's there. But the Bible says about that house that was built upon the rock, it did not fall. It is a foregone conclusion. Theologians call this the perseverance of the saints. It is a guarantee. It might be scary at times, but it did not fall. Why? Because the Lord is our refuge. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And it doesn't stop there. It says this. The Lord said, and great was the fall of it. It is not just that those of you who are rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ are going to fall in this life. You don't die once if you reject Jesus Christ. The Bible says you die twice, once temporally and the second time eternally. Great was its fall. 
Storms are coming whether you're on a rock or on sand. Would you be so foolish to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning and not respond by faith in him? You wouldn't do that in any sense. If I came to you and I was trying to sell you a house and you looked at it and you saw that that house was beautiful and I told you before you left, yeah, but it's built on sand. There really is no foundation. Would you purchase that house? No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't waste your money. How much more is your soul? And Jesus says, storms are coming. It's a rock or it's sand. You have to choose where you're going to build your house. Everyone who hears, two things, hears and everyone here this morning has heard. Everyone has heard. The question is the second qualification. Everyone who hears and does these words of mine will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. If you hear and you do not do, you have no hope today. If all you've done today is come to church and heard, you're not saved. You have to build your house on the rock. There's something left to do. There is no such thing as having Jesus as Savior and not having Jesus as Lord. Men wanted to be, they wanted Jesus for Savior. They didn't want him for Lord. But Jesus says, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That's why baptism is so important. Because Jesus wants to say to you, you died and now I live in your resurrection. He looks at you and says, if you're mine, you belong to me. He who hears and does not do, you have no hope today. You have chosen to build your house on the quicksand of apathy or the quicksand of your own way of doing things or the quicksand of not today. You have chosen. You have rejected God. And the Bible says you have hated his people. How? You have despised his son. And look at the cross with contempt. Day by day, the word calls out to you this one truth. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Would you reject such a great salvation? The Bible says, for those of you who are here today who have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and rejected it, that it would be more tolerable for cities like Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it will be for you who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are in a worse position. You are, you are more worthy to be called evildoer if you have heard the gospel today and leave through those blue doors without receiving Jesus. How do you do it? 
It's not just that you will fall in this life. Jesus is not how to have your best life now. As a matter of fact, it might get worse. Maybe, I don't know that Joel Olstein would have sold many books had he been on the front like this. And the title read, How to Suffer in This Life. Nobody's buying that at Publix, right? Is that to have your best life now? You might have terrible suffering. But you have the certainty that the Lord is your refuge. Most of our favorite verse, most of us, our favorite verse is Philippians 4.13. For I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Every boxer puts that on his belt, right? He's got Philippians 4.13. So when he gets in the ring, it's by the strength of Christ that he knocked your teeth down your throat. It's by the strength of Christ that he gave you brain damage. Yet when Paul said those words, he was in prison. Believer, what I sell to you is not a bill of goods. Non-believer, what I sell to you is not a bill of goods. It is only the certainty that when the storms come, if Jesus Christ is your refuge, you will stand in that day. Let's pray. God, open hearts. I pray that if there is anyone here, and Lord, I know that there is, who needs to receive Jesus as their Savior. You have made it clear in your word this morning that there are two types of people in this world. Those who reject you or those who receive you. Everyone in here falls under one of those two categories, Lord. And I pray that those right now who are rejecting you, that you would open their hearts to receive the gospel. Holy Spirit, I believe that you and only you, through the preaching of your word, can open hearts. So I plead with you this morning. Don't let anyone who has rejected you leave without receiving your son this morning. You are mighty, God. If you spoke the universe into existence, it is nothing for you to speak life into dead men's bones. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.